Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, public pot smoking, the mayor's latest announcement on weed, how police reform is being felt, if at all, in outer Brooklyn, and MLK Jr.'s time in New York City, immortalized in an exhibit. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle filling in for Ashley Ford. A quick note about the Brooklyn Half Marathon that took place this last Saturday. It had more than 25,000 people finishing it in the rain. I'm not going to tell you who won, but who placed 32nd among more than 12,000 women, our own Sasha Whittle. And here's the video she shared about that experience. So for those of you listening who can't see what we're watching, it amounts to a promotional spot for a royal flush porta potties hundreds of them reaching to the horizon, or at least way, way down Eastern Parkway. Impressive image. And all i got to say, Sasha, besides congratulations, is that it kind of tells us where your head was at. I hope you found relief. So now this. The mayor announced today he'll tell the NYPD to stop arresting people for smoking marijuana in public. It's a positive step, but don't start smoking in the streets yet. Okay, I know you're already doing it, at least in my neighborhood on my street. It won't go into effect until the end of the summer. To talk about this and another important weed-related announcement, we have on the phone Chris Alexander, Policy Coordinator for Marijuana in New York City with the Drug Policy Alliance. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, tell me, what were your thoughts when you first heard the mayor's announcement about arrests for public smoking? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we shared, uh, we've been working on this issue for a very long time uh, with the Drug Policy Alliance and, and the advocates across the state and the city. Um, and so, we're, you know, we were really uh, happy about uh, this movement and getting the mayor to decide that he uh, felt that there needed to be a better way to enforce this law. Um, and I think that what it really represented was the fact that uh, that point that he uh, elevated in his comments was the inevitability of it all. Uh, we've been working to end marijuana prohibition in this state and in other places across the world and the country uh, for, for quite some time. And so we're, just, we're great to see the progress that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, we do want to also make sure that we do highlight this is an incremental step and there's mm-hmm. much work to be done. Right. Um, but it is a good, it's a good feeling. Well, let's get to that in a moment about readying the city for legalization, which is what he, made, what, what he also said in his statement. But let's talk about some of the, the issues. This isn't going to go into effect until the end of the summer. And also, they're still going to hand out summonses. And one might assume also there might be disproportionate uh, policing. It might the, the, the enforcement might fall heaviest on the communities that it already falls heaviest on now with arrests, just albeit in summonses. Yeah, yeah, and so we know summonses are, are merely a step, uh, still a step uh, towards criminalization, maybe a step away from the actual arrest. Uh, but in many cases where folks, you know, don't have the funds to pay for the summons, the financial toll of the summons, um, or, you know, simply forget to show up to court, um, a warrant is then issued for their arrest. And so what we've seen, actually, is that, you know, summonses are still a step towards criminalization. Um, but really the key issue that is not necessarily being focused on uh, by the mayor's comments and his shifts in policy um, is dealing with racially biased policing, which we know is at the crux of this issue um, and, and we've been elevating that for, for the last few years. So this may do nothing to remedy that. Those same people might still be getting summonses, and then may, if they fail to show up in court, they could be facing some kind of jail time exactly. still. I wanted to talk to you about the ending of prohibition and what that could do as far as educating people around marijuana. It, that came up a little bit this weekend when there was this another K2 overdose in, in Bed-Stuy. I think about 25 people were sent to the hospital having OD'd on this synthetic pot. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? 
Sure thing. I mean, one thing that we um, have learned in our research and have then communicated to lawmakers um, is that, you know, one, the drug war has been and will continue to be a failure. Um, there are many more uh, sensible approaches to reducing drug use um, or making sure that people are safe, uh, which really should be the focus of any types of policies that we enact about these substances. Uh, K2 and other synthetic substances like it um, are ones that arise in the place of prohibition, right? They come up because uh, individuals don't have access to legal marijuana, for example, as it relates to synthetic marijuana or as K2. Um, we call them synthetic cannabinoids. Um, and what we've seen essentially in places where there's legal regulated access, you know, people are healthier, people are safer um, from these type of adulterants or uh, created substances that are being marketed as, as marijuana. People are buying them because they're being told that this is marijuana um, and it's, it's not at all. Um, and additionally, we've seen folks uh, turn to these substances, you know, to use marijuana, but to escape drug tests because mm. some of these substances won't pop up um, on a drug test. Should they have uh, a job uh, coming up? Should they be um, on parole or probation and, and, you know, not being allowed to use marijuana while in that type of uh, court-mandated supervision? And so, you know, these are things that arise in space of prohibition. When you move beyond prohibition, you move beyond these types of uh, substances being created, um, and you get a little bit more education, as you alluded to earlier. You know, people start talking clearly about what these substances do to you when you're moving beyond a just say no approach. Um, giving some real transparent education we think is key right. to moving the country, the state, and the city beyond um, this drug war era. Sorry we're out of time, Chris, but thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, I assume that you guys will be getting a call from the mayor as he tries to ready the city for marijuana legalization. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Also, Chris's colleague, Cassandra Frederic, will be one of the panelists on the Be Heard Town Hall coming up on Wednesday, Who's War on Drugs? So we're looking forward to that. Coming up, more on criminalization of certain communities in Brooklyn and what they're doing to counter over-policing. The possibility of making a 911 call in an emergency should give us a sense of security. That, when in trouble or crisis, we can dial that number and someone will rush to our aid. But in certain neighborhoods, those calls can actually introduce a harm greater than the one being called about. That was the case last month with Saheed Vassal in Crown Heights, an otherwise harmless man who was brandishing an object some thought looked like a gun. The police shot and killed him after answering a 911 call. Our next guest heads an organization aimed at dialing down over-policing in his Flatbush neighborhood. The organization is called Equality for Flatbush, and his name is Imani Henry. Imani, welcome to 112BK. Thank you. So as I mentioned in the intro, uh, this issue with 911 calls where a lot of people in the city, a lot of new people maybe to the borough may not understand or appreciate the harm that might come when making a 911 call, bringing the police into a situation that might not require the police, that might be a situation that can be resolved in the community itself. Can you talk a little bit about that in your experience? So I think there's two things. I think, one, um, we should definitely talk about the connections between gentrification and 911 calls. This is true nationally, that 911 calls have increased, 311 calls and 911 calls have increased nationally, nationwide. We mm -hmm. can talk about Oakland. You know, where one month there might be 800 
you know, new calls of 911 that are completely, as we've already seen, black people walking, black people barbecuing, black people just living their lives. I think the other piece, and particularly why we have started an initiative about alternatives to 911, is about just in general the calling 911 for um, mental health emergencies, mm-hmm. uh, medical emergencies have left to the death of black people, particularly black migrants. So we can talk about Mohammed Ba in the mm-hmm. um, in Harlem. We can talk about Deborah Danner. We could talk about in our neighborhood, particularly De- uh, Devonte Presley, who mm-hmm. was uh, shot three times for calling 911 himself. Uh, in October of 2017, just before, just after, actually, Deborah Danner. Then we talk about Dwayne June, Mm -hmm. who was murdered nine months later by the same exact cop, um, Miguel Gonzalez, of the 67th Precinct. Nine months later, he, Dwayne June's mom, called 911 for a mental health emergency, and he was murdered. Mm. And then we have, and can talk about, again, um, Saeed Vassal's situation, and the way, exactly, that within a community that people are moving in, might not know a neighborhood person in any way, shape, or form, whether it be a person living with a mental health condition or someone in the neighborhood that they just don't know, Mm -hmm. and they're not involved in the neighborhood, and they call 911 without talking or thinking or checking with people in the community first about what they're seeing, Um, being able to really actually investigate. So we've um, developed, um, you know, some tactics and strategies about talking um, within the community about how 911, um, you know, in general, is not safe for us. And what are some tips that we can do, some things that we can do to um, make sure and safeguard ourselves from being killed mm-hmm. by the NYPD? And you mentioned an initiative. I know you guys have a meeting coming up next week, and I'll, yes. I'll ask for the information about that um, before the end of this interview, so please remind me. But what might be some alternatives? I mean, if you can give me a short answer sure. for that, maybe a couple alternatives that might be takeaways for some people. So first and foremost, a lot of times landlords tell people that they should call you know, the police on other tenants in the building. And we say, let's—this is why we organize around tenant association, and it's really important. We couple the housing struggle, the fight against displacement around gentrification with police accountability. And so we we have intervened as a community group. We asked the neighbors to intervene with each other. We, we talked about the fact that, you know, and there's studies that have shown that if we, as a more—we um, create a more cohesive, more self-reliant community, then we can—we don't need to rely on the police. They're not there to settle disputes between— between family members and tenants, why can't we take care of ourselves? There's lots of documentation of people in the community even being able to intervene in domestic violence situations. We have long histories of people creating safe houses for each other or saying, you can come and stay with me and figuring out ways. Now, again, if someone needs to get police presence or whatever, we say, come and be together with that person. Again, if you need to videotape that situation with the police when the police are called, we ask people to think about, like, saying, instead of saying that's a mental health emergency, it's a medical emergency, mm-hmm. and you need an ambulance, because mm-hmm. that's what those families needed. Right. They needed an ambulance and medical attention. They did not need 20 cops. Right. There's talk now of psychologists accompanying officers out on calls, and I think sometimes they talk about they. I know that a lot of police officers run into tricky situations when they're answering what are these calls, emotionally disturbed person, right, Uh, ADP. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's when a lot of things can go wrong. And so I think what they've tried to start to initiate is having these psychologists go out on these, uh, answering these calls with them. I don't know if you've experienced any of that, if that's working, or if we just need to get the police out of the picture entirely. So one, we think we need to get the police out of the picture entirely. They're not, this is not what they're trained to do. As a social worker, I can say that absolutely they're not trained to do that. 
And then the other piece of it is there's been lots of initiatives, and I want to be clear that we've heard that these initiatives are happening from the city. We know activist groups have been for years asking for people with mental health diagnosis themselves to be part of the company, we, of the of police officers. We've asked social workers to be part of it. And I think this is really interesting. When it's been a grassroots effort, the NYPD and the city has always said no. Mm. We've asked about these. There's supposed to be a mental health crisis team that's supposed to be with the police. We've even heard that there's supposed to be tasers. We have not seen any of these things. Mm. We've asked over and over again. But I know for a fact, when groups like RIP, those rights for people with psychiatric disabilities, tried in, like, uh, the, uh, 2011, 2012, 2013 to negotiate these measures with the NYPD, they, they were told no. So you're saying that cops aren't even going out with tasers? This is the, we we hear that this is true that they're assigned to have tasers. I have, I'm I'm just speaking you know as someone who's lived in New York since 1993. I've not seen a taser on a cop. Wow. And so I I this is what I we because again we've engaged in these conversations mm -hmm. with the city as well as the NYPD, our group as well as lots of other grassroots organizations, mental health um, organizations. And again, we we still have. We, we can still start naming all the various people that have mental health um, crises or medical crises that are being murdered. Mm -hmm. And so, clearly, if these measures are in place, why aren't they actually being implemented and actually like, mm -hmm. going forth? Why, why, do, why do we even have to say the name right. of Saeed Vassal being murdered by the police? Right, right. And to, to shift gears real quick, um, and you talk about some of your background in harm reduction, and the mayor made an announcement today. We just spoke with somebody about it on the show, uh, about the plan to make it so that Police will no longer arrest individuals for smoking marijuana in public. What, what are your thoughts when you heard about that? What, were, what are your thoughts about how that might manifest and, and if that will kind of help any, um, if it might remedy any of the problems going on in your neighborhood? I, I, I mean, I want to always big up the activists that have fought long and hard for all of these initiatives. I think the other piece of this is always about the enforcement. And so it, it's—I I, want to always, like, be um, skeptical about um, the understanding about how policing happens in our neighborhoods. They say that ICE and the NYPD do not work hand-in-hand. Hand. It's actually a, quote-unquote, like, not a policy. I've been on panels with the commissioner of, of immigrant rights who have said that over and over again. And people in East Flatbush and the Haitian community are like, oh, I'm so, so sorry. I want to say and push back on that, that's not happening in my neighborhood. Hmm. The police and ICE work in and I have visually seen the cops, uh, ICE agents get out of cop cars. Like, it's real in our wow. neighborhood. In the same way, we know that broken windows policing is about racial profiling. So it, it's, it's interesting about, like, how will those, how will individual police, like, handle folks, like, for instance, someone who, um, you know, fare evasion is the highest um, broken windows violation that's happening. Sure. And it's in our neighborhood. We talk about we are part of the Swipe It Forward cam campaign. We have lots of police hiding in particularly black and brown migrant neighborhoods behind poles at our train stops. Right. What if someone is caught with marijuana in their possession? Mm -hmm. That's like still sort of the issue that we, we want to talk about. I am happy for anything that is, you know, like activist-led and created. That is a huge victory for us. 
the enforcement of it and, and the accountability to make sure the police actually do what they're supposed to do, that takes the rest of our community to do it. Mm -hmm. So the trust that it's just going to happen on its sure. own, given all, I mean, sexual harassment is at work in the workplace is supposed to be illegal. Right. And we can talk about how it's a widespread epidemic that still goes on and is still covered up and people fight every day to make sure that mm -hmm. what is a law actually is enforced. Right. And in the very short time that we have left, uh, you know, talking about marijuana and the war on drugs and how this may be a bit of a de-escalation in that regard. We're going to be having a town hall uh, in a couple of days, Wednesday night, about the war on drugs. I wonder what you, how you feel if there has been a de-escalation, crime is going down in the city, does it feel like you're still being over-policed for drug issues, particularly in East Flatbush? I, I feel like very much, and we could talk about just in general, the gentrification creates, I know always the word over-policing, it's like, you know, it's not even... It's, it's not about over-policing, it's about an occupation. It really is that our neighborhoods, and this is true, it's statistically true, all gentrifying, rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods have an increase of more police. And so that's the, I think, the the ultimate piece of it is that, that if, if driving in your car, you know, that we, that's one of the biggest, like, checkpoints, uh, traffic stops that are happening over and over again in our neighborhood, they, we've watched them searching the car. We now have what is a strategic response group, which is an anti-terrorist organ, um, like, wing of the police, are patrolling in East Flatbush and Flatbush. So it feels like it's this advance guard of the police, like the police are the advance guard of gentrification, and they're just kind of sweeping Absolutely. almost on that boundary and pushing... Dollar van drivers, street vendors. We, we were fighting last year for it's a stop $2,000 tickets to a street vendor selling ICs in our neighborhood. Mm. Our leadership that are, are um, you know, uh, Latinx uh, street vendors in our neighborhood with single parents pushing back, going to the police meeting saying, why am I getting a $2,000 ticket? Yeah. for selling an icy or a churro in our neighborhood. And that's, that's what we're dealing with. Who gives a $2,000 ticket to a single mom? And that's what we're, that's, that's, so again, it's sort of, it's hard um, to talk about the difference between our lived experience under gentrification and police, um, you know, occupation, when there's this under the statistical fact that crime is down. That's so interesting because it still feels like an incredible militarization of police in our neighborhood day and night. So you have an event coming up next Tuesday. Can you just give uh, very quickly sure. the details for that if anybody wants to attend? We have uh, alternatives to uh, 911 Community Forum. It's the first time we're doing an event like this. It's going to be at um, uh, the Mount Zion Church, which is basically the corner of um, East 37th Street and um, uh, uh, Church Avenue. And we hope that folks will come out 7 to 9 o'clock. Tuesday night, 9 o'clock? Uh, yes, uh, the 29th, of, 29th. of May. Okay, and if they want to get more information, they can go to... You can go to www.equalityforflatbush.org. Feel free to give us a call, email us, text us. We love all of that. There's definitely plenty more to talk about, so we'll have to have you come back on the show. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But, no problem. But thank Lonnie, you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. In 1950, a promising young student pastor practicing in Elmhurst, Queens, was given only a B, a grade B, for pulpit ability because of aloofness. Eight years later, that same man, who'd since graduated to full-fledged pastor and was being called many things, though not aloof, almost lost his life at a book signing in Harlem. 
He would later go on to do a few other things outside of New York, but chances are you may already know about those things. So it's his lesser known time in New York City that's the focus of a current exhibit at the Museum of the City of New York. It's called King in New York, an invitation to discover Martin Luther King Jr.'s connection to the city running until June 24th. I recently spoke with the museum's Puffin Foundation curator of social activism, Sarah Seidman, about it. Here's that conversation. So, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, so tell us about what it was like to curate this exhibit. It seems like an obvious one to have on the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination in, in 1968. But what was it like to put together? Well, absolutely right. We wanted to commemorate um, the 50th anniversary of his death, and we we. We had kind of a hunch that, that New York, as the museum of the city of New York, you know, we're always placing the city at the, at the center of the stories we tell, that, that he had been here a lot and that the city played a role, you know, in his work and, and persona. And so we, we kind of, you know, dug in and, and found that King really had spent a lot of time in the city and that, moreover, New York really offers a a lens through which we can view King in a kind of broader um, way and remember some of the the pieces of his philosophy and his writings and his work that that aren't always remembered. From your your research, you found that there were a lot of points in his life and career that were important in New York, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, we start with him giving. Um, a, a speech at St. John the Divine um, in 1956 in front of 12,000 people. But actually, he, as a, as a um, student preacher, when he was still training, he spoke in Queens a few times um, in, like, 1950. So he definitely had a long history with the city, and in addition to sermons, gave countless political talks, you know, used the media platform and the media of, of um, the city, but also um, New York as the kind of global stage and global city in the post-war era um, is another focus of the show. Um, so really looking at how New York's um, center of, of uh, culture and capital and global mm -hmm. politics really facilitated um, some of the uh, work that he did here, that, that his work in the civil rights movement wasn't just in the South. Um, right. And it wasn't solely in the North either, that there was a global focus sure. um, to his work, and that we can see that through, yeah. through his presence here. Right, because, of course, we hear a lot about his time in Chicago again, but New York seems right. to be kind of left out of the history a little bit. So I also saw in the literature for the, um, for the exhibit that there was a moment when he was in Harlem in 1958 at a book signing, and a woman stabbed him in the chest with a letter opener. Do you, you guys kind of commemorate this moment in the, in the exhibit? Indeed, we do. We, we borrowed a, a photograph, a vintage print um, from a gallery um, that shows him on the steps of Harlem Hospital leaving after spending two weeks there convalescing. He, he really did almost die, um, came very close, and he needed surgery and was operated on by black surgeons in Harlem, so it was their whole kind of interesting, larger story. Um, and then he um, spends a few weeks recovering and, and it was definitely a pivotal event in his life, and I think reaffirmed his commitment to nonviolence. He spoke uh, about after. And you talk about the photographs, and is that largely how the stories are told in the exhibit? Is it mostly through photographs? Yes, yes. Um, it's about forty photographs. So we have a few pieces of like printed ephemeris. Um, 
press releases and flyers around his anti-war um, activism. Uh, there was He participated in the big um, spring 1967 mobilization against the war um, in Manhattan, um, but and a few pieces of audio. Um, but otherwise, yes, it's really um, a show that emphasizes the photographs. Right. I know one of the photographs that um, that we highlighted was a very, like, a close-up, somber image of him. You know, later, in 1967, I think the weight of the world and right. of um, threats on his life and, and opposition to racial equality certainly continued to weigh on him increasingly. But I think we do see some of that weight um, in, his, in his bearing and, and in his words. But, I mean— just collectively taking his speeches, um, be they to uh, religious groups or to political organizations or um, against the Vietnam War. He gave a watershed speech at Riverside Church, 1967, exactly one year before he was killed against the war. Taking those together presents a really interesting body of work, um, where, again, he's, he's, you know, criticizing capitalism um, and militarism, as well as racism. Um, and, I, and I think New York—I don't think it's a coincidence that those come through really strongly in his New York work. Mm -hmm. And in the late, it sounds like he was here a lot in the late 60s. Um, we interviewed a little while back, uh, right around the, the anniversary, uh, a parishioner at Plymouth Church in Brooklyn who was there at the time he gave uh, he, the American Dream speech, wow. which was a precursor right. to the I Have a Dream speech, and it was incredible to hear her um, impression and perspective. I bet, I that. bet. Uh, but also he spent some time at the United Nations as well, right, or, you know, at, at rallies and marches and even speaking? Yes, yes. So the we have a whole section of the show that really looks at his work um, on global politics in New York. So be that meeting with leaders at the UN um, or even just photographs of him at the airport at JFK, um, you know, then Idlewild. In front of like a Pan Am plane. Or right, probably, exactly. Right? So even like having meetings, you know, going to and from. He had a big celebration in the city after he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, kind of flew in and out of New York on the way to accept the prize, and Mayor Wagner staged a big celebration for him. Um, upon his upon his return, gave him the Medallion of Honor. Um, but then, right, he gives this speech against um, the Vietnam War in April uh, April. 4th, 1967, at Riverside Church, and then he comes back mm -hmm. 10 days later to participate in this um, big march that goes from Central Park to the U.N., and then mm -hmm. he, he speaks um, at the U.N. along with Stokely Carmichael, other, other speakers against the war. Um, and, and it wasn't his first denunciation of the Vietnam War, but it was certainly his most comprehensive mm -hmm. at Riverside Church. It's a masterful oratory, like so many of his works, and it's available online, so I encourage everyone to read it, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, really starts out as a pretty specific critique mm -hmm. of the war and how it <clears throat> disproportionately affects um, African-Americans and, and takes away from the war on poverty, but really broadens to this, mm -hmm. like, large critique of, um, of war and violence and American um, values in the global arena. Mm. So in the minute that we have left, can you just tell me, um, what do you hope people will take away from the exhibit, and how can people uh, experience it, and until when? Absolutely. So, um, I think we want we want people to to understand the breadth of of his vision, um, and and you know 
Unfortunately, that, that racism, of course, is very much still with us, as is economic injustice and inequality in many forms. And so um, the words that he, that he spoke and, and wrote still resonate very much uh, with, us, with us today. Um, so the show will be up through the third week in June, and we hope as many New Yorkers, Brooklynites, and, and people outside of the five boroughs can come visit. Great. Well, I hope so, too. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing thank this you. with us. Thank you again. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow, we're going to speak with an author and activist about American Jews and their relationship to Israel, plus a preview of the Be Heard Town Hall titled Who's War on Drugs, happening at Brick House this Wednesday. Hope you'll join us. 112BK is hosted by Ashley C. Ford and is written and produced by me, Ross Tuttle, with Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hogaseg and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker, and our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. 